We're going to do a quick survey. You'll need your hand for this, okay? So go ahead and locate it if you're not sure where it is. Who in this room was born, raised, and lived within roughly 25 miles of here? Now, roughly as in, okay, if it's 26.2, you're okay, you know. If it's even up to 30, you're okay. If you went away to college for a little while and came back home, you're okay. So roughly 25 miles of here. Raise your hand. It's actually more than I thought, but take a look around the room because a lot of people weren't, right? In fact, I would dare say that for most of the room, life started and happened somewhere else, somewhere other than here. It could be said that ours is a rootless generation, not ruthless. That's a different sermon. A rootless generation. For most of human civilization, most people were born, lived, and died within a short distance of their birthplace. I mean, think about this. By the end of this day, it is likely that someone in this room will get on a plane and fly to Florida or Texas or California for work tomorrow or for a vacation. I mean, that would be absolutely unthinkable to earlier generations to go that far in that short a distance. We are rootless people. We've lost a sense of the importance of, of place. We're not like the farmer of a generation ago who would be born, live, and die in the same house on the same piece of land. The convenience of mobility has ripped a sense of placeness from under our feet. Place matters. Sacred spaces where where life happens matter. Places we return to again and again and again matter. I think it's part of the reason I've enjoyed so much working on this little chapel at Green Lake this summer. This 30 by 60 foot space has stood for about 120 years. It's a building made of stone that was once a root cellar, a place to store food. And that was repurposed as a chapel a place to, to nourish the soul. We evangelicals can be a little funny about places. We downplay the importance of sacred spaces. We even kind of look with a critical eye sometime at, at denominations that invest in ornate cathedrals, you know, looking at it as somehow being a waste or whatever. Further, we, we have this tendency to be on the move, thinking somewhere else is the place that we will finally find what we've not found yet. We like to think that places do not matter, and that they should not matter, that somehow caring about a place is materialistic, that we should be higher-minded. We'll say things like, our home should be in God, not not in a building. And I get that, and honestly, I, I fundamentally agree with that sentiment. We should be able to be rooted in something beyond our senses of seeing and touching. And yet, God made us with this tracking feature that's always longing for a place to sink in our roots, a place that feels like home. Sacred spaces bring us home. That little stone chapel at Green Lake has been a spiritual home for a lot of people. So is this place. Like our little chapel at Green Lake, this land was once agricultural in nature as well. It was a pasture for grazing animals. And now it's a place to nourish the human soul. And I'm talking about the feeding that goes beyond singing in a sermon. I'm talking about beauty. 
both the natural beauty around here that God created, as well as the beauty of design, that which he placed in the human heart to build and to decorate. Do you know how many people walk into this place and say something like this to me? When I walk into this space, it feels like home. I feel like I've come home. We, of course, need to be careful not to turn space into an idol. We are not to worship a place, but in a sacred space, we can be nourished and we can flourish spiritually. Well, as you saw when you drove in today, we're embarking on a season which will change the face of this sacred space. Shanahan finally did this. Finally, finally, finally. The long-awaited permit passed, and I think it was all of a day, and they got out there with the monster mower and started clearing away brush. It's gone. And in the weeks to come, dirt that has not been touched since it was farmed will be molded and crafted into detention and parking and a family life center. We celebrate adding space to this sacred place. And we look forward to the ways in which God will use this tool to help us reach our very fullest redemptive potential. We began a series last week called Beyond Us. We're looking at a chapter in the life of King David. It's the season toward, quite literally, the very end of his life. David has a a deep longing to build a temple for the God of heaven, for Jehovah. We know from his story that he's clearly a man who loves God and who loves to worship. I mean, this guy danced before the Lord with all his might. He wrote so much of the book of the Psalms, and that's really the the hymnal to be used in the worship by God's people. He was known for his musical ability. In fact, it was his musical ability that caused him to be noticed by Israel's king Saul. You may remember that Saul was tormented by an evil spirit. And that music had a way of of calming his soul. And so his servants knew of David's musical talent. And they sent for David. And David would play music for Saul. And he would be calmed. Music and worship were part of David's DNA. And late in his life, it caused him deep distress that the God of heaven did not have a permanent house in which he could be worshipped. We saw last week that David had in mind to build God that house and that God had a different plan. God didn't reject the idea outright, but he did make this detail very clear. Because of David's dirty hands, hands that had been stained by war, he would not be the builder of the temple. Their privilege would fall to his successor, to his son Solomon. So David heeded the directive from heaven that had been delivered to him by Nathan the prophet. He did not start to build, but he didn't remain idle either. He got to work. He, he had to help out those who would come after him. He wanted to set up his son and his son's generation for the greatest possible success. This was our focus last week. That beyond us means taking an, in, taking an interest in what will last beyond our lifetime. Not just the time in which we exist, but the time beyond us. David would never see the temple. He would never touch it. He would never worship in it. But that did not keep him from making a wholehearted investment in the future. Beyond us means that we look beyond today to tomorrow. Beyond us to them. Beyond now to the future. 
We lay aside self-interest and instead make an eternal investment. And so we saw in 1 Chronicles 21 and 22 that David started laying the groundwork for what was to come. In chapter 21, he purchased a piece of land for an important sacrifice. And at the beginning of chapter 22, he declared that very piece of land as the location of the foundation for the future temple of God. It is at the height, the high point, the physical high point of the fledgling city of Jerusalem. A place today that is known as the Temple Mount, the high point of the city. I'm going to walk you through a couple of images here. I did not draw this, but it's kind of cool. So what we have here is David's Jerusalem. And I say David's Jerusalem because now the city of Jerusalem is miles and miles and miles. Back then, it was just a small area there on the hillside. And you see, by the way of the drawing, that it, that it slopes upward, upward to that. You see the number three at the top with the little smoke rising to heaven. That was the place of the sacrifice. So, so there's this high place that would have overlooked the lower city with the Kidron Valley on one side and the valley on the other. There's David's Jerusalem. Now, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to flip the image. So don't mind the spelling. I'm flipping the image because now what I want to do is show you the modern city as kind of an underlay of the overlay, okay? So here's the way the city looks today. There's that little part in red, David's city, the city of David. And up above, that's where that sacrifice would have been made. That gold dome right there is where David said, we will build the temple right here. So, David bought the land. And he started collecting materials. It said, he gave orders to call together the foreigners living in Israel, and he assigned them the task of preparing finishing stones for building the temple of God. David provided large amounts of iron for the nails that would be needed for the doors and, in the, and the gates and for the clamps, and he gave more bronze than could be weighed. He also provided innumerable cedar logs for the men of Tyre and Sidon had brought vast amounts of cedar to David. So I want to get, get, again, get a little perspective on this. You familiar with the idea of the, of the, oops, I should have shown you that verse. There it is. You familiar with the idea of the wailing wall? The wailing wall. The wailing wall is the exposed part of the foundation of the temple that Solomon built. You see those rocks? Get perspective of the humans standing by those large stones, okay? People from around the world go to this place, this, this exposed foundation. In fact, you see right here, this foundation wall, it keeps going on in underneath the buildings there. This is the foundation of the temple that Solomon would have, been, would have built. And people from all over the world go there today to pray. And they write their prayers and they wedge them in between the cracks, between those stones in the foundation. When the Bible talks about preparing stones, they weren't just taking a little rock and polishing it. These were human-sized stones that were being prepared for the building of the temple. I want to continue reading. The Bible says, my son Solomon is still young and inexperienced. And since the temple to be built for the Lord must be a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin making preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. 
David recognizes just the overwhelming vastness of the project. He refers to it as a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world. Now, looking down a little bit further in the passage, here's what we read. He says, I have worked hard to provide materials for building the temple of the Lord. Nearly 4,000 tons of gold. You're thinking, I'd take a ton. 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver, and so much iron and bronze that it could not be weighed. He also had gathered timber and stone for the walls. Though you may need, and then he says, though you may need to add more. I've, I've gathered quite a bit. You have a large number of skilled stonemasons and carpenters and craftsmen of every kind. You have expert goldsmiths and silversmiths, workers of bronze and iron. Now beginning, now begin the work and may the Lord be with you. So what's kind of fun now is to get a handle on this in modern terms. You know, kind of the modern equivalent of cost and all that sort of thing. I tried doing the math myself. I'm the father of two mathletes. Uh, That gene skipped this generation. There was way too much conversion involved in this. And I'm a pastor. I like conversion. But, uh, you know, (laughs) looking at, at multiple sites and just trying to get a handle on this, this was the consensus. This is an article I found based on 2013 metal values, okay? And just to get an idea, in, 2000, in April 2013, gold was at 1475 an ounce. On Friday, this past Friday, it's right at 1400 So it's comparable. Silver on Friday was at $17 an ounce. When they wrote this, April of 2013, it was at $24 an ounce. So it was considerably higher at that point. But nonetheless, you get an idea, we're not going off of 1972 prices or something like that. Listen to this paragraph. I did not write this. Using the average current price of gold, average current as in April 2013, the gold alone of Solomon's temple would have been an astonishing, let me get this right, 194,404,500,000. Yikes. The silver would have been Twenty-two billion, one hundred ninety million, seventy-six thousand dollars. Added together, the gold and silver alone used in Solomon's temple was worth two hundred sixteen billion, six hundred three million, five hundred seventy-six thousand dollars. Now, get this. That does not include the precious metals, the bronze, the ivory, the, the iron, the cedar wood used in the temple. It goes on to say, extrapolating from the number, the cost of Solomon's temple, including labor, 153,000 laborers, would have been over half a billion dollars. And building the temple took over seven years. Now, for perspective, the New World Trade Center building, $3.8 billion to build that. That's billion with a B. And ironically, it took seven years to build as well. So, the site had been selected. The materials are being gathered. The stones are being crafted and cut. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the cedar is being mounded for for future use. The place that David refers to as a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, is is waiting for David's funeral so that the task can begin. Now, there was a phrase we kind of glanced over in verse 5. I want to read it again. 
He says, my son is still young and inexperienced. And then he goes on to talk about how huge the project is going to be. There is this huge task to be undertaken. And David is about to hand off this incredible project to a kid. To his son. His pride and joy, but a kid nonetheless. I had this fun experience yesterday. Um, It was Manuka's homecoming, in case you haven't noticed all the Charmin around town. Uh, It's Manuka's homecoming. And so... Uh, we apparently have popular kids on our street because we had a lot of toilet paper hanging from trees. And so I'm driving up my street and I come around the corner and there's this dad and he's pushing a stroller and he's right there by the corner house. And I stopped and I pulled down my window and I said, take a good look. That's going to be you someday. (laughs) And dad said, I was just thinking the exact same thing. Some of us in this room have kids to whom we have handed the keys and said, be home by 11. And for the next several hours, we could not breathe. We waited and wondered, where did they go? How fast are they driving? Uh, Did they remember everything we told them? Uh, We turned on the little tracking devices on our phone to see where they were. The whole works, you know. And every time the phone rang, we were sure it was the state police delivering dreadful news. David isn't just handing the kid the keys to the chariot, okay? He will soon hand him the keys to the nation. And he's going to hand him the keys to his dream, Have you ever had a dream and said to someone else, now go fulfill it? It leaves you with a little bit of a lump in your throat. A half billion project. Here, kid, have at it. David isn't just handing this kid a chariot. He's handing him a nation. And he's handing him a job that he loves. I don't know what King's School was like back then. But I think it's safe to assume that nothing fully prepares a prince to take the crown and step into the shoes of his dad, the king. David said, my son Solomon is still young and inexperienced. And as much as David tried his best to position his son to succeed, only time would tell how he would do. You know, not too long ago, our team sang this beautiful song in over my head beautifully in over my head. We're going to listen to it during communion today. And further and further, my heart moves away from the shore. Whatever it looks like, whatever may come, I am yours. Then you crash over me, and I've lost control, but I'm free. I'm going under. I'm in over my head. You crash over me, and that's where I, you want me to be. I'm going under. I'm in over my head. Whether I sink, whether I swim, it makes no difference when I'm beautifully in over my head. In over my head. As much as David tried to prepare his young and inexperienced son, Solomon would soon find himself beautifully in over his head. And that's exactly where God wanted him. God loves when we are in Beyond our abilities. He loves when we look up and say, how in the world are we going to do this? 
He loves when we feel overwhelmed and under-equipped. Why? When, he, when, we, when we live beyond us, beyond our abilities, we start to know who we are not. We are not God. We are not the Almighty. We are not indispensable. No way. We are helpless. We are weak and we are in need. And in over my head helps me to get, me, get to know the real me real well. In over my head also helps me to get to know God real well. He is God. He is almighty. He is indispensable. You see, we are helpless and he is our help. We are weak and he is our strength. We are in need and he is our fullest supply. David's words about his son's youth and inexperience must have resonated in Solomon's mind and heart. Because after David's funeral and a short-lived power struggle, Solomon is crowned king. And that night God appeared to Solomon and said, What do you want? Ask, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon replied to God, You, have, you showed great and faithful love to David, my father. And now you have made me king of this place. Oh, Lord God, please continue to keep your promise to David, my father, for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me the wisdom and knowledge to lead them properly, for who could possibly govern this great people of yours? You see, while David had given Solomon the plans, only God could give Solomon the wisdom to see them through. While David had given Solomon building materials, only God could give Solomon the resources to complete the task. It was when Solomon was beautifully in over his head, and he knew it, that God could show up in great power. Folks, we're, we're not taking on building a temple of the magnitude and expense of Solomon's temple, okay? This is not a half-billion-dollar project. We're putting in parking and adding on a gym. Having said that, a million-dollar project is way beyond us. In some churches, one person could easily write that check and we could move on. That's not us. It never has been since 1881. We could have skipped this project in light of what we view to be our inability. And you know what that would have been? It would have been comfortable. I think we would all agree that God's heart is broken when his children live in sin. I'm also convinced that God's heart is broken when his children crave comfort. Both break his heart. Sin eats away at the human heart and comfort calcifies the human soul. We petrify spiritually. We stop growing. We become content to survive. God wants so much more. He wants us to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's where he wants us to live. We are begin, being pushed beyond our limits. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad one. I've been asked from time to time how much we need in order to fulfill this project. And, and the easy answer is a million dollars will pay it off. Every bit we can put toward it now will keep us from having to borrow more. And that will mean that we'll have more to do, um, uh, more resources when we move into that new space. If you've not been around Southfield uh, for long, 
you don't know probably our DNA when it comes to fundraising. In fact, you were probably at some other church and, and they had a, a, a way of doing things and you're thinking, okay, uh, this church will be a lot like that. Let me say what we do. We, we try to take an approach that is biblical and in keeping with our values. We don't do gimmicks. There's not going to be a thermometer up here with uh, amen goals and, and hallelujah goals and all that kind of stuff on it. We don't collect pledges and then go knocking on doors to see them fulfilled. We don't do a bunch of high-pressure one-on-ones. Here's what we do. We make the need known and ask God's people to pray and to respond as he moves them to do so. We believe this is authentic and organic. It is genuine and is consistent with biblical teaching and with the character of our church. Keep this in mind. God wants us to live beyond us beyond our own abilities, beautifully in over our heads. By the way, Solomon wasn't the only one jumping into the deep end. Uh, David did as well. If you look at chapter 29 and verse 2, he talked of all the work he had done, all the work he had done to prepare for the coming temple. And then in verse 3, he goes really personal. He says, this is what I'm giving. And it was not an insignificant amount. Instead, in fact, he said, I am giving all of my own private treasuries of gold and silver to help in the construction. And then he gave an accounting of the amount, and it was enormous. David was living beyond his ability. He was willing to give everything he had. The Bible says David gave it all. I believe God is calling all of us into the deep end. To live in a place that is beautifully in over our heads. He is calling us to live beyond ourselves by living beyond our ability, relying on him for absolutely everything. You know, we used those words earlier today, fullest redemptive potential. To realize the very fullest redemptive potential that God has given us. It is not possible to reach one's fullest redemptive potential while living half-hearted, while holding back, while being less than devoted, while keeping our reserves in reserve. It is not possible to reach one's fullest redemptive potential when living within the limits of our own abilities. So I'll feel the time has come to jump into the deep end, to live beyond our abilities, in over our heads, beautifully, beautifully in over our heads. I have a prayer for us today as we enter communion. It's a classic prayer. I'm going to read it. And then I'm going to leave it on the screen for us for reflection during that silent time before communion. We'll, we'll just be silent for a minute. And then from there, you can go to one of the four stations around the room where, by the way, the candles are lit today. And so you, you've got these spaces to go have communion. Look at this prayer. Lord, teach me to be generous, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not count the cost. To fight and not heed the wounds. To toil and not seek for rest. To labor and not look for any reward. Save that of knowing I do your holy will. I'd like you to go ahead with me and just read this out loud. Uh, whether you own it or not at this point, just, just read it out loud together. Lord, teach me to be generous to serve as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, 
to toil and not seek for rest, to labor and not look for any reward, save that of knowing I do your holy will. If that prayer doesn't leave a little bit of hesitation in your heart and a lump in your throat, you're one of two things. You are excessively spiritual and good for you. Or you haven't really gotten it yet. Because he's saying generosity means I am going to live far beyond any ability that I see. God, we ask you to teach us to live beyond us, live beyond our abilities, beyond our physical resources, leaning in to your enablement, into your divine abundance. So just sit with these words for a minute in the silence. Read them, pray them, own them if you are willing. And then when the music begins, move to one of the four stations around the room for communion. So we are officially allowed to start playing in our dirt. This coming week, a silt fence will go up on the far side and give an idea of the definition of where the property line is. But... PBS uh, is really great about sending us weekly updates of just the things they did during the week. And, and one of the things that they've added to their weekly updates is uh, pictures, not from the ground, but, but drone slides. And so I already ran through these. I love that everybody can find a spiritual reason to buy a drone. And so, uh, you know, this is cool. This is cool. It's cool to be able to see that from up above, to see the, the roof line, to see that, that little dot out there. That, that's the former Gaga pit. It's now, the Gaga pit is sitting under the blue there. You see that? That's, that's our pile of sand being guarded from Mr. Kitty until, uh, until we can figure out exactly where we're going to be going. But yeah, the nice black line is going to go across there and everything's going to start to get pushed around and I don't know. I thought that was just a beautiful, beautiful picture. I think that one's going to be my screensaver for a little while as I stare at it and, and think, of, think of you throughout the week. So anyway, I'm sure that as they come up with more of these images, we will, we will put them on the screen. Not probably built into every sermon, but uh, the pre-slides or post-slides. So you'll want to make sure you check those out. And I suspect we'll put them out on the TV as well. So you got some kids stuff going on? Yes. So tonight, Revive is not meeting here. We're actually meeting at Manuka Bible Church, which is down um, past the high school. So this is a, an opportunity for a three-in-one, Grace, Manuka, and Southfield. All the students from those three churches are getting together uh, to hang out and to, to do this together, to do this worship thing um, together. We're going to have a lot of fun. We've got some big games planned. Um, so you're going to want to make sure to come out to that. We are also encouraging students tonight to participate in something on Wednesday morning that is a little nerve-wracking, a little challenging. It's called See You at the Pole. And what that is, is a, it's a national day of prayer. So students around the country are meeting before school, literally at, the flag, at their flagpole out in front of their school, just to spend time in prayer together. Um, it's not required. You know, we're not going to be like, we don't, the, the, the leaders, this is not an adult-led thing. This is student-led, student-run, and it's really on them to, to go. And again, you're praying for your school, for your teachers, for, for anything. Um, just, again, to, to 
give you that opportunity to see who else in your school is there with you uh, to, to provide support. And again, uh, reach out to God. So tonight is a great chance for our students to to set up uh, that time with with each other. And I know that Manuka, we have two campuses. Uh, so again, rides can be tricky and all that. But I'd really encourage you parents uh, to, to get them there tonight. And then um, if they're willing to go on Wednesday morning to see you at the pool, uh, get them out there. Great. Wonderful. Groups got off to a great start this week. Uh, one of them is yet to start, and that is the one-hour group. It's starting this Tuesday. Three guys found out it did not start last Tuesday. They showed up. So anyway, um, they get extra credit for that. But um, yeah, our group starts this Tuesday, and it's normally been Thursday, so be aware of that. Tuesday at 6.30. During the second service today, Larry and Elizabeth Barrages are going to be bringing their daughter, Avery, to be dedicated to Jesus. And so if you know them, you'll want to congratulate them. Here's the special deal for you. That's five minutes that we're not going to fill in this service. So you get dismissed early today. And I don't know about you. When I used to be in school and they let me out five minutes early, I mean, that was like the coolest thing in the world. So there you go. You get the coolest thing in the world today. Why don't you stand up and let's bring up that prayer one more time. Let's pray this prayer out loud together. Lord, teach me to be generous, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek for less, to labor and not look for any reward, save that of knowing that I do your holy will. As we walk out of this place today, God, we realize that opening line, teach me to be generous. You will provide the lessons when we ask you. And so I pray that we will have open eyes, open hearts, open hands as opportunities for generosity in all forms come to us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.